So what we do here is a spiritual enterprise. It's not of our flesh and efforts. So I want us to spend just a moment silently contemplating what's happened and what's about to happen. Uh, And then we'll pray and get into God's word. So let's prepare our hearts through some moments of silence. Father, let our hearts rest in this moment to lay down our strivings, to lay down our anxious thoughts and cast them upon you for you care for us, to lay down our stresses and frustrations, to lay down the distractions that cling at us and grip at us, That we might see you, God. That the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to see you. A little clearer. With a little more glory. With more of the brightness of your worth. With more of your power. The power that displayed itself in raising Jesus from the dead. And now works in us. Father, let our hearts see and be glad. That's not something we can manufacture through songs and music. It's not something we can manufacture through uh, outlines and ideas. It's not something we can manufacture with clever words. It is the gracious work and visitation of your spirit. That's what we ask for, Father. Clear out the stuff that would keep us from seeing and being changed because we've seen Father, do that for me. Do that for us. Father, for the sake of your glory, do it. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I'm going to quote two famous poets, and I'm going to quote about all the poetry I know. Not all of it, but some of it. All right, so a guy named Robert Frost's most famous lines were, Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and I chose the one less traveled. And that made all the difference. And then another famous poet you might know better named Yogi Berra. If you come to a fork in the road, what do you do? You take it, right? Going out into life, there are two roads and they go in very different directions. Going out in life, you must take one of these roads. And the road you take makes every single bit of eternal difference imaginable there is the road of under god's covenant as god's covenant people through jesus delighting and placing yourself under his good word and his good promises and the wisdom and the blessing of that or the road away from god away from god as a good moral person away from god as a completely rebellious person but it is a road away from god it is a road with your wisdom it is a road with the wisdom of the world attached to it And you look out from the diverging point and you think, man, there are so many people on this road. It's crowded. It's popular. The majority opinion all goes in that direction. And doesn't it look fun? 
And then there's a road that's a little more overgrown. It looks like it's a little harder. You don't see as many people taking it. But the road you pick will make all the difference in the world. So let's look at it as we go to Psalm 1. Uh, this opens up the Psalter. That's the collection of the Psalms. And it opens it up with some of the key themes that are going to run throughout the entire book of the Psalms. And so in the entire book of the Psalms, there's the way of blessing and the way of cursing. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Through the entire book of Psalms, you're going to find that life and fulfillment come in connection with the law of God, the Torah of God, the instruction of God. And you're going to find that cursing always comes in the way of wickedness. And so all the Psalms uh, will have, or the theme of the Psalms will run through these things. And you'll see these play over and over and over again. And Psalm 1 introduces those <coughs> to us. But I want us to remember, these, this is the songbook of the covenant people of God. And so when you read this and think, he does the law of God... Don't think he does the law of God and he's blessed and he prospers. Think this is a covenant person who has placed his life joyfully under the instructions, the covenant instructions of his God. And it is the relationship to God that gives him a love for God and his word that leads to all the life of righteousness and all the blessings and all the favor that comes through the Psalms. All right. And so it is the covenant people delighting in the covenant word. Uh, one thing you'll notice if you read the Psalms is Hebrew poetry has a very distinctive feature, and it's called parallelism. So each line, like it, it's two lines, and so the first line and the second line parallel each other. And so as you're reading it, you're like it's, it's almost repetitive, or it says the same thing and then goes to the next. So what the parallelism does is it either one, it just restates the same thing. And so it's line one, line two, same, same. Or the second thing it will do is it will, the, the second line will expand or inform us. It will explain the first line. And so line one and then explanation, expansion, line two. Or oftentimes what you'll find, and you find it a lot in this psalm, is line one and line two contrast each other. And so we learn more about each line because its opposite is stated in the next one. And so line one and then the opposite of line one is line two. And so you see that like the last verse of the section. The Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish, right? And so there's this contrast between the two. Uh, in verse 5, you see explanation. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the unrighteous. It more explains what it means not to stand in the judgment of God. So that's just a feature that as you're reading the Psalms or you're reading some of the poetic books of the uh, in sections of the prophets, you'll just find these lines explain each other or repeat each other or contrast each other. And that's just a feature that you'll notice. <laughs> Sorry, I think I brought something back from vacation with me that I didn't ask for. Uh, but here we have two different ways of life. Two different results that flow out of those ways of life. And then two very different ending points, destinations from the roads that, that are mentioned in this psalm. So let's read it and then we'll jump in. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are 
not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So look at this. The life that God blesses seems to be the theme of the psalm. He's describing the guy that God blesses is consumed with influence from God's word while avoiding the counsel of sinners is consumed with influence from God's word while avoiding the counsel of sinners. I'm going to steal a little of this. Pretty much everybody here driven a car. Yeah. Or watched your parents drive a car. This amazing thing happens every time you get in the car. I've got like this four or five thousand pound hunk of metal and fiberglass. And you know how I control it? A little bitty finger. I nudge my finger this way and this big massive thing that outweighs me by like 20 times moves the direction I tell it. Or, you know, if I got to take a real turn, I can do it with one palm. I nudge it in this direction. It goes in this direction. All I have to do. When you come to your life and you're driving through life, the little things that nudge your life will influence the course. It will change your direction. It will nudge you in this direction, that direction. And so what you allow to influence you, what you allow to turn the wheel of your life will make all the difference. And so what are you allowing to influence you? Think about this. The average American spends five hours a day watching television. What's nudging the direction of your life? What's steering the steering wheel of your life? This little bitty TV directing this whole life? Or you might think of it this way. The average American spends two hours on social media a day. What's nudging the direction of your life? Statuses and news updates and images and directions. Buy this. Want this. Need this. This is what the good life is. This is what matters. This is how important these people are. This is how perfect their life is. And all of that is your influence. This is how you should think. This is how you should feel. This is what you should want. This is what you should drive. Steer. 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 Influence. 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 And without ever thinking about it, this massive hand is on the steering wheel of our life, and it's not God's hand, and it is turning us wherever it wants to turn us. In fact, there's billions of dollars spent every year to tell you what the good life is. And so whether it's the world of business, whether it's the world of academia, whether it's the world of entertainment and pop culture, or the news media and its propaganda, either side, not, not making political statements here, but they are telling you this is what matters. They are telling you this is what's important. They are telling you this is the way you should think. This is the way you should view the world. And it is steering the direction of your life over and over, wherever it wants. And then there's a whisper. There's a still, small voice, yet still persistent voice of the Spirit of God. Trying to grab hold of the steering wheel of your life saying, come, soak yourself in my word. Come, hear the mind of God. Come, look what it is like to follow me. And he is trying to steer. And he's good at his job. And that is the great war for your heart. Who will control the steering wheel of your life? Who will influence you? Let's look at it as we go into the first few verses here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We're introduced to the, to the key player of the story, and the key player of the story is the blessed man. 
or blessed woman, the, the person of God who is blessed. Who is it? And the word for blessed is the word for happy, for prosperous, fulfilled, or the person under God's favor. And so you might say blessing is to be religiously happy. It means to be happy in the goodness of God. It means to be happy underneath the goodness and favor of God in your life. And so the blessed man is the man who lives in the presence of God and his favor, God's favor and goodness rests on him. So blessed is the man, happy is the man who is in the presence of God and the goodness of God covers him. Blessed is the man, and then he's going to tell us what it's like, what he's like, but he's going to start with what he avoids. And so there's a set of influences, and you see them intensify, don't you? And so you are running after God, and then you see this, this slowing down. We're going to walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then you see it, I'm going to stop, I'm going to root, I'm going to, I'm going to set my feet in the way of the sinner, and then I'm not going to just not... I'm not going to casually walk by. I'm not going to just stand and root. I'm actually going to sit down at the table and join in with the mockers. And so you see this intensification as movement goes from passing to soaking to sitting and joining. And then you also see an intensification in the words used there. Uh, we'll get to them more, but you have this, this, the wicked, which means the no God people. They don't have God. They are ungodly. They're not godly. Right? And then they move to sinner. And the word for sinner, when it's used as a category of people, it often means like the really bad sinners. And well, again, we're going to talk about that in a second. But, but it's, it's a specific category of like the worst of the worst. And then you go from that to mockers. I'm not content with my own rebellion. I'm not content with my own sin. I have to actually oppose and make fun of and slander people who are trying to live differently than me and don't join in and are righteous. So you have an intensification of the walking, standing, sitting, and an intensification of the words, the type of people that you become, or the type of people that influence you. And so he avoids this. He starts by, he avoids walking in the counsel of the wicked. And so again, you're running after God, and then you're walking. The idea of kind of passing counsel, letting this counsel seep in, letting this counsel kind of stop and gaze at it first, or walk by it while I'm gazing at it and seeing the view of it. But I'm not stopped in it. I'm not soaking in it, but I am giving it a good long look. I'm looking at the counsel of the wicked and, I, you know, I'm kind of paying attention to it and I'm letting a little bit come into my heart. The blessed man will not do that because he knows that's not the way of blessing. That's not the way of covenant blessing from the covenant goodness of God. And so he does not walk in the counsel. You know that there's always voices trying to give you counsel. Here's what's important. Here's what really matters. Here's what's fulfilling. Here's the way you should think, and here's the way you should believe, and here's the way you should act. It's the counsel of the world, and it's always talking to you. But the man who's blessed, if you want to live a life that is under the favor of God, that is in the presence of God, then you will not allow yourself to kind of glance too long at that counsel and let it get in there. So don't take the counsel. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. So, but that's still movement. That's still passing. That's just a long look. But he also doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And so again, you've gone from running and now you're walking and you're kind of, you're observing it, but you're walking. And then you stand and you root yourself into the way of the sinner. And your feet kind of plant there. 
and you start to soak in this counsel and soak in this path of life and soak in, I actually kind of like doing what I like to do. I actually kind of like not walking the rigorous path of following Jesus. I actually kind of like the, the world's way of thinking and feeling and doing and acting. And so you soak, you root yourself down into the counsel in the way that is opposed from God. And so instead of diverging towards God and running towards him, you're now walking and stuck in the path of those who are far from God. And so you don't walk, you don't stand. And again, the, the sinners would be a specific category of the worst of the worst, right? And so in Jesus' day, um, they would oftentimes say that, right? They would say like, they are sinners, meaning not just we're all sinners, but this is a special category of really sinful people. And so, and we get this, right? We know in one sense that the way God looks at it is all sin is infinitely evil, desperately needs the blood of Christ to cover it, desperately needs the gospel. And if you are good and moral your whole life, you need just as much Jesus as if you were, you know, a criminal in prison who's murdered, who's done everything you can think of. We all need the same blood of Jesus, right? We know that, but we also know in a common grace sense, from our perspective, there are Sins and types of people that are worse than others, right? There's a spectrum of depravity. And so Jeffrey Dahmer is not the exact same as your neighbor who's a nice guy and, you know, lets you borrow stuff. Like, that's a different thing. Not in a saving sense, but in a practical sense. And so that's what I think we're seeing here is these are the sinners. They are, they are this category of kind of the worst of the worst kind of sinners, you don't stand and root yourself into people and into ways that are like that. Make sense? Are y'all with me? All right, raise your hand if you're with me. Put it down if you're with me. All right, good. Here we go. And so he doesn't walk with the wicked. He doesn't stand and root and soak in the, and marinate himself in the counsel and the way of sinners. And then he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is the worst of the progression, right? Running after Jesus. Walking, observing the counsel of the, of the wicked. Standing and rooting yourself into sinful categories of life and thought and patterns. Sitting down. Sitting at the table with those who are wicked. And it's not good enough at that point. And you notice, you'll see this progression all over the world. It's not good enough for me to live the way I want. It's only good enough when I belittle you, slander you, attack you, mock you because you believe differently than me. And so I scoff at the righteous. I mock the righteous. I slander the righteous. And that's what he's talking about in that section. They have gone from glancing at the counsel of the wicked to joining in making fun of the righteous. And that's the end result. And you see this happen all the time. You see this progression, don't you? It's not good enough for you to be you and do your thing and leave me alone as a Christian to do my thing and let us have a good, honest discussion of things and then go, go away as friends. That's not good enough for you. If I believe differently than you as a Christian, I am wrong, I'm evil, I should be silenced. Why? Because they're sitting in the seat of scoffers. It's not good enough to be a sinner. I must be a sinner who destroys the righteous, who mocks the righteous, who slanders the righteous. It's not okay for you to believe differently than me. It's not okay. And that's where this person has gotten. The blessed man does not get sucked into that. And you've got to watch yourself. And I've got to watch myself because I can be running after Jesus. And then slow my run down just enough to walk. And then slow my walk down just enough to stand. 
and where I never thought I would ever be. I'm looking at men that I don't know who run the Southern Baptist Convention and I'm mocking them and making fun of their reputations by innuendo and slander. And I would actually allow myself to do that and then post that on Facebook. I'm not saying I didn't do that, but people, a bunch of Christians I know did that. You have now mocked men you don't know over an innuendo that was not true. And that's just one example, but we do that in social media all the time. We tear down the character of other people we don't know. How have we gotten to a place where it's okay for me to sit down and mock? That's not the life of blessing. That's not the life where God's favor can pour into me and then pour out of me into others. It will never happen. So the blessed man avoids letting himself slow down from following Jesus long enough to take a long glancing look at the counsel of the wicked. And he he fights with every ounce of his being against being stopped and the inertia of his life towards Jesus being stopped and marinating and saturating and soaking into uh, the ways of sinners. And with every fiber of his being, he would be utterly disgusted that if he were the one sitting down looking at the righteous and mocking that's not the way of blessing, that's the way of cursing. He avoids, but he also positively does some things. He, he does put an influence in his life. It's just not the influence of the world. It's not the influence of entertainment and culture and media and social media. And, and the best life is the, the richest life. It's not allowing his heart to be captured by that. Instead, <coughs> his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Key themes of the psalm, joy, delight, gladness. Read them. And when I'm, I'm reading the psalms personally at this, right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting every time joy, gladness, uh, delight comes up. And it's everywhere. The themes of the psalm is the covenant life under the covenant God, under the covenant word is the life of joy and the life of fulfillment and the life of gladness. Joy in God, joy in God's word, joy in being attached to him through his word. Right? And that's, that's what it's about. That's a major theme of the Psalms. And then another theme of the Psalms is the law or the Torah. That the life, genuine, real, meaningful life flows out of this law of God. And the law of God is just not the rules of God, right? If you read the first five books of the Old Testament, it's not law, 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 law. It's work of God, covenant of God, promises of God, deliverance of God, miracles of God, setting feet from slavery of God, uh, uh, binding a people to himself in covenant God, and the instructions of how to be God's people. And so his delight is in the work of God. His delight is in the deliverance of God. His delight is in the adoption of God. His delight is in the rules of God because he's God's. And those are the themes that you'll see here and that run all the way throughout the psalm. Notice this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. His pastor does not have to stand up every week and say, did you read your chapter of Isaiah? Did you stop long enough to make a note? Why? His delight is in Isaiah, the law of the Lord. His delight is in John, the law of the Lord. His delight is in the Psalms, the law of the Lord. His delight is in Galatians and Ephesians and Genesis and Exodus. His delight is in Leviticus. He doesn't have to be begged to go read the genealogies of Numbers. Because his delight is in the law of the Lord. He finds his life. He finds his fulfillment. It's not a mere duty that he must perform. And know this, when, when we cast that vision and we drive the application home week after week for over a year now, and we say, have meaningful time in the Word daily, and here's a reading plan, we're not asking you to check the box of that chapter. 
We're trying to put you into a place where you encounter the glory of God in his word in such a way that it delights your heart. And the only way we can get you to do that is if you actually open it up and find him there. And so we want to challenge you to do that. But you can't do it on your own. We can't give you an application that will make you love his word. But you can pray and you can fast and you can ask and you can look and you can open it when you don't want to open it. And you can say, where are you, God? Until your delight is in the law of the Lord. And you saturated your life in his word because you delight yourself in his word. And the influences of the word go to every corner of your heart. And the influences of the word are the critical filter that comes from all the other voices that come into your life. His delight, not his duty, not his formula, not his box to check, is in the law of the Lord. The inner compulsion of his soul is the good instructions of a good God. And that's the only person of blessing. That's the only person of the covenant. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his word, he meditates day and night. Going to use a gross analogy for you. Sorry. Cows do something called chewing the cud. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm going to explain it briefly. It's not a pretty picture, but it is a picture of meditation. All right. So cows have four stomachs. So they take a bite of food and they rough chew it. And it goes into stomach one. And chewing the cud comes next. That comes back out of the stomach into the mouth with all those acids attached to it. And he chews it some more. That's why you see cows are always chewing. It's either the first meal or the second meal. First time or ABC time, right? So he takes it, chews it again, brings it back into the second stomach, and it starts working its way through from there. That's meditation. I take in God's word and I chew on it a little. It stays in my soul and it kind of marinates and mixes in there. And then I bring it back up and I chew on it some more. I think about it some more. I, I turn it over in my mind some more. I look at it some more and then I let it go back down in there and sit in there and mix some more and work its way through my entire being that way. He meditates. He brings it down and up, down and up, over and over, turning it over to see every facet of glory that it contains for him. And he does it day and night. Deuteronomy 6, we talked about this, right? This, this word in our hearts, this memorization of the word, this meditating on the word. And so that I wake up in the middle of the night. What's the first thought that comes to my mind? What's my status? Have I checked on what people are doing lately? Should I get on a game? Or is it the word of God comforting me, reminding me, speaking to me as I fall back to sleep? What is, the, what is that middle of the night waking thought? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And day and night, waking and sleeping, he meditates, he chews, he brings up, and he puts back down the law of God. The good instructions, the good activity, the good reminders of his miracles, and the good reminders of his covenant, and the good reminders of his law. Night and day. What is the dominant influence of your life? What has a hold of the steering wheel? And as you think about your family, because it's not just us, right? As you think about your family, your spouse, your kids, what has the steering wheel of their life? What is influencing the direction? Is it the world? Religious world, secular world, entertainment world, business world, whatever world. Or is it this delight in the good words of a good God? And I want to challenge us all to take a look. (laughs) 
I'm not saying you should avoid exposure to the media or avoid exposure to any of the stuff I'm talking about. But make sure your exposure and your children's exposure to this stuff is critical. Meaning you pass it through the filter of am I viewing it God's way? And I pass it through the filter that way. Is it overly capturing my heart? And I filter it that way. And so I'm allowing what comes in to be, to be um, siphoned, to be, to be um, strained out by God's word in my life. Are you doing that for your family? Maybe it's after a long day of being soaked in the educational system um, for the day. You debrief and you talk about what are some good things they learned and how you see God in that. Then you talk about some of the things we know. Is that something that's true? Is that something that we believe? Why don't we believe that? What are some other ways of looking at it? And so you debrief the things that have been put into the heart so that the influence is critical and right. And you're able to navigate a world that doesn't follow God while still following him. What has hold of the steering wheel of your life and your family's life? Second thing, it results in a life that is rooted in flourishing versus withered and wasted. It results in a life that is flourishing versus wasted. In Peru, they have these squatter towns all over the place. Uh, because there's a law in Peru that uh, I don't know how long it is. If you can erect a structure and a boundary long enough, squat on that piece of property, it will become yours. And so you'll drive, especially way out into the outskirts, and you'll find little stone markers, no shortage of stones there. It's mountains and all. And you'll find this little woven grass hut. Not even a hut, just walls. Right? And you'll find a bunch of them put together. Because they know if they can keep that there long enough, it will be their property. Why they would want it, I don't know. It's in the middle of a desert with no water and nothing near it, but it would be theirs, I guess. So they squat there. And every so often, because there is a certain amount of time attached to this, the government will come through and they'll knock them all down. And so the time clock stops and it has to restart somewhere else or whatever. This is the way a life built apart from God is. I got a little piece of desert dirt that's mine, but at least it's mine. I got a little life that I'm making. I don't know why I would want it. It's not near anything. There's no life around it, but it's mine. And then it's just waiting on the next circumstance to come blowing by, roll over the top of it. Okay, I guess I better start and build over. And here's the crazy thing we do. We build on the same piece of dirt. Like I totally blow up my life. And then what do I do? Start building it in the exact same location, the exact same way I built it the last time. But that's the only way to do it apart from God, isn't it? But here's the thing. If they do make it and they do sometimes, then they turn a little straw house into maybe a wood house. Wood house into an adobe house, adobe house into a brick house. And all of a sudden you've got a town now built up in the middle of nowhere. Some with even, you know, they bring some sort of utilities in and some have roads attached to them now. They've just grown up into a real town. They got planted and they grew. They made it. When you build your life on God's word, it may be the same terrain you're building on. But you're building something that will last You're building something that's going to remain. And when the circumstances roll through, they don't get knocked over this time. Let's look at it. He, the blessed man of verse 1, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. He's stable. He's rooted, right? The word is actually transplanted, not planted. And so his life has been taken up by God and it has been placed by God next to a river. By the way, Israel is a really dry place. They've gotten it so advanced that they're, they say not a drop of water falls in Israel that gets wasted. Like they've captured every single one of them. It's that dry. Water is a precious commodity. And so in this case, this very arid, very desert place is very hard to live and thrive and grow and produce fruit. 
God takes him up and says, here's a stream of water. And he plants him. And water's not an issue anymore. Water's not an issue anymore. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. He is now stable. He is now rooted. And he may still be in this desert climate. And it may be desert all around him. But this life is fixed. This life has all the nourishment it needs because its roots branch out into that stream or near that stream and soak in all that's needed. Backside desert, underneath is water. That's what the righteous life is like. That's what the blessed life is like. It's established. The same circumstances come. The same desert beats it. The same sun bakes it. But there's a stream, and that's the difference. It's all the difference. Jeremiah 17 talks about the exact same thing. Same image. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Has his counsel. Has his way. Has his mocking. Cursed is that guy who trusts in his own strength. He is like a shrub in the desert. A shriveled, thorny shrub in the desert. But, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water and its roots will shoot out into the stream and his leaf will always be green. What's the difference? Same desert. What's the difference? Same baking heat of life in a broken world. What's the difference? The place of your trust. If the place of your trust is people or the world or yourself, you are doomed to shrivel and produce nothing of impact. No way around it. Greatest men in history, people who have run empires, and you sleep through a professor glossing over their life in about two and a half minutes. Greatest men in history. That's a life of the great emperors. What do you think your life, with all the success you can possibly get and dream of, what do you think it's going to be in the footnote of history? Anything apart from God. It is doomed to shrivel into nothing. What a big, wonderful glob of nothing. But don't think that's the only way. I don't mean to depress you. Look at the other way. The life attached to God. It's like this tree planted by water. And it bears fruit. Not only is it stable and rooted, can withstand the circumstances of a broken world. It also bears fruit in the middle of a desert. It makes an impact in the middle of the desert. It yields its fruit in its season. And so it doesn't have to be shriveled. It doesn't have to be wasted. It can be life-giving. It can make an impact on the world around it. And the desert doesn't matter. Why? Because the stream of God's faithfulness and our faith in his faithfulness runs by and nourishes it. But notice something about fruit. It's in its season kind of stuff, isn't it? Fruit is not continual. It has a season. Fruit is not immediate. Look, got my apple seed right in the ground. Where's my apple? It's not immediate and it's not, per, it's not continual, is it? It's seasonal. And so we spend our lives faithfully, patiently, working, tilling, laboring, fertilizing, caring. Because we expect in good time, in God's right season, fruit will come out of that. Impact will come out of that. And so we spend our lives... Investing faithfully, spending our lives faithful to the right things and in the right ways. And we know that in good time, God's good time, fruit will come and impact will come. That's what the righteous life is like. It's rooted. It can stand circumstances, whatever they are. It's fruitful. Life and impact will come out of it. 
And then the last part of it, he doesn't wither. Instead, whatever he does prospers. Now, we've got to understand something about wisdom literature when we see statements like this. It does not mean the righteous always outwardly prosper and the wicked never outwardly prosper. We might be tempted to judge the world that way. That's not the case. So in wisdom literature, it is what is generally true and it is what is ultimately true. So all things being equal, the righteous life is more fulfilling, more prosperous, more successful than the unrighteous life. That's all things being equal. That's maybe not the discipline of God. Maybe it's not the stretching and growth of God through discipline and affliction. Maybe it's not the world that is walking away from God doesn't really reward righteousness very well. In fact, it punishes it. And so again, all things being equal, it will generally be true. It will always be true that it's more fulfilling to walk in righteousness with Jesus than in wickedness. But it may not be outwardly as prosperous. Right? Because it's all things being equal. And it is ultimately true. God wins in the end. All God's promises come true in the end. And there will be an eternal prospering that happens to all the righteous. And so it's generally true and it's ultimately true. And then finally, it takes us this long to be introduced to the other way of life. There's a blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord. And since he delights in the law of the Lord, he does the law of the Lord and he lives righteously. There's this righteous man who's like the stream flowing by this tree and he's bearing fruit and it's rich and it's beautiful and it's lavish and it's always green. The wicked aren't like that at all. The wicked are the exact opposite of that. The wicked are like the little crusty things that come off of grain when you harvest it. And all it takes to get rid of it is it's laying on the threshing floor. It's laying on a table, a good strong wind to come by. (sighs) Gone. Nothing lasting. Oh, but it was great and he was huge and he was famous. (sighs) Gone. But did you see all the movies he was in and he was cute? Guess what? They all have gray hair now and they're wrinkled. I grew up with these guys. And nobody's really wanting them in their movies anymore. Like, I'm that age now. And you will be too, by the way, someday. And all these hunky movie stars that you really like, guess what? They're not going to be in movies anymore when you're my age. Like, God, he he looks awful. He was so rich. He was so famous. He built an empire. 70 years, 50 years, 30 years, 20 years. He made the history books, three and a half paragraphs. That's the way it is. The wicked are not like the righteous. They are blown away in the end. But the righteous will last and leave something forever. And so what is your way of life producing? In your marriage, is it stable? Is it fruitful? Are you faithfully laboring at it to produce the greatest amount of intimacy and love and, and, and partnership possible? Or is it... What about your kids? I guess you invest in your kids. Is it patiently tilling the soil of their hearts? Is it patiently planting the seeds of the word? Is it trying to mature them and grow them so that the fruit of maturity will come out one day? Or what about ministry at church or ministry in your, uh, with, with people that you're in community and fellowship with or ministry towards those who are far from God? Are you patiently, lovingly investing and serving and eating and sacrificing and building relationships and planting the word and talking about Jesus? Or what is your life producing?
the righteous, the blessed, are like this fruit-giving tree. It's not the way the wicked are. The last step, and it's a pretty quick one because it's pretty straightforward. Not a lot to have to say about it. The blessed life ends in the eternal assembly of the righteous in the presence of God versus destruction. Where's your life heading? At the end of all of this, where will you be? Where will your neighbors be? Where will your friends be? Where will the people you work with be? When we challenge you to eat and bless and serve and share with one, we're praying for all of us to develop a compassion, a God view of people that sees where it's headed and is willing to give our lives and sacrifice our lives that if by any means the gospel would keep them from ending up there. There are two different destinations to these two different roads. And there's no way around it. The point is simple. The point is clear. So let's look at it. Both ways of life have a final destination. The righteous and the wicked. So look at this. The blessed are known by God. But isn't God on this? Doesn't God know everything? Yeah. He knows the righteous in a saving way. He knows the righteous in a way that I care for them, I love them, I know them, I'm intimate towards them, I'm in relationship with them, I've saved them. That's how he knows the righteous. He does not know the wicked. In fact, the scariest verse in all the Bible is when Jesus says these very words. Jesus, we prophesied in your name. Jesus, we served in your name. Jesus, we worked hard for you. Depart from me. I never knew you. He knows the righteous. He knows them in a way that's saving. He knows them in a way that cares for them eternally. And cares for them through all of this life. That's not the way the wicked are. Because the wicked will not stand in the judgment. When it is time to stand before God, and you will. I don't believe that. You still will. God's not much concerned with whether you believe it or not. When you stand before God in the judgment... If you do not have Jesus, and if you do not have a perfect righteousness, which is Jesus, you will have no standing and no claim to the good presence of God for all eternity. But Jesus, I went to church. Jesus, I helped people. Jesus, I fed the poor. Jesus, I built wells. Depart from me. I don't know you. They will have no standing in the judgment and they will not have a place in the congregation of the righteous. In the great Revelation 5 where all the saints of God will gather one day from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And they will sing the song of the redemption of the blood of Jesus. They will have no access to that worship service that is eternal. They will have no access to that presence that is good and eternal. They will have no access to the city that doesn't need a sun anymore because the Lamb is its light. They will have no access to the goodness of the glory of God for all eternity because they will not have a, they will not have a seat at the, in the congregation of Jesus that is eternal. They'll have no standing there. The Lord knows and cares the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Where are you headed? We have all sinned grievously against this beautiful, perfect, holy, glorious God who made us and made us for himself. And we have sinned against him. 
And we have been traitors against him. And we've warred against him. No matter how good we are or how much church we did, we've warred against him. And instead of crushing us, is is his rightful place. And he should have. Right in this moment, he should crush you. He should crush me. And instead, he sent his son who lived a perfect and sinless life that you couldn't live. And he crushed him on a cross. And he died. And he was buried. And on the third day, by God's own glory, he raised him from the dead. And he ascended him to the right hand where he sits now forever making intercession. And he has sent his Holy Spirit to convict you and to draw you and to show you the glory and beauty of Jesus. To rescue you from your sin and to rescue you from this place called hell that will be separate from the goodness of God forever. And to bring you in the goodness of his presence today and the ultimate goodness of his full presence forever. If you will turn from your sin and you will believe, you will put your resting faith in Jesus and only Jesus to save you. Blessed is the man that does that. Blessed is the man who makes the course of his life running after Jesus and not walking or standing or sitting after wickedness. Blessed is that life. Blessed is that man. It can handle the heat of circumstances with all that life brings in a broken world. It can bear fruit in a desert and give life and impact. And it will end ultimately with the presence of God now and the perfect presence of God forever. One way or another. A few quick practical things as we close. Check your influences. Maybe it would be valuable. We had not done this since January. Maybe it would be valuable to do a media fast in your life or a media inventory. Like when's the last time you stopped and checked, how much TV am I watching? How much social media am I doing? How often am I checking and updating and posting and looking? Might be time to do that again. Check your influences. See what's going on there. Maybe it's time to have a daily debrief with your kids about what they're learning and how they need to view it. Check the influences of your life and your family because it is so much more subtle than we can ever imagine the world grabbing hold of our steering wheel and pulling us away from God. It looks right. It looks like the American dream sometimes. Second, delight in God's word. Does your heart really, does your heart really desire God's word? Like, are you sitting there for the past 40 minutes thinking, I rejoice that I get to hear the good word of God. Not because I'm any good at this, by the way, but because it's the good word of God. Are you looking forward to the next time you're going to sit down at a table and open up the Bible and read through it? Do you put it down and bring it back up and put it down and bring it back up? Does your heart actually feel anything about God's word? I don't say that to guilt you, but you might want to think about that. And if it doesn't, it's this awesome opportunity to fast, to pray, to apply, to seek, to ask until it does again. Because delights the measurement, not how much chapters you read. Delights the measurement, going down and coming up. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord. Maybe you need to instill some new, new habits. Maybe you need to do some fasting and praying. Maybe you need to do some asking. Third thing, stay faithful until you are fruitful. Are you doing all that God desires for you to do? Are you doing the right things? Are you doing it the right way? And do you have integrity in your life? If you can honestly answer yes to those questions, then keep doing it. Until the fruit comes, you be faithful to your fruitful. Fruit is seasonal. Impact is seasonal. 
And all the things that you see happen, whether it be in this church or all the things that you see happen in your life, all the impact that you see, that's real impact, it happened because there were years of praying and years of working and years of doing the right things and years of, of committing yourself to the right ways and years of applying the right things before it shows up. And then everybody's like, hey, wow, look at this. It just happened. Yeah, because somebody faithfully fertilized and faithfully watered and faithfully nurtured and faithfully put the right soil around it until it, until it bore fruit. Be faithful. Right things, all the right things, with integrity, until it's fruitful. Until it's fruitful. Let's close with prayer. So, Father, we want our lives to be blessed. But we've got to admit, sometimes we want them to be blessed on our terms. We want them to be blessed, Father, while we do our own thing and go our own ways. And, God, that's just not your desire for us. That's not where life is found. And so, God, I pray you would correct our hearts by the beauty and grace of your word. God, that you would show us that fulfillment in life comes from this book and not that TV screen. From this book and not that phone and not that tablet. From this book, Father, and not anything else that could be offered to us. Father, I beg you to do that for us. That our delight might be in your law, that our lives might be built on it and flourish from it, that we might be people that are stable and people that are fruitful and people that prosper as you count prospering. Not for our names, but for yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe uh, you realize the path you're on is not God's path. It did not enter by the narrow gate of Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. It was a good religious way, but it wasn't Jesus. We're going to invite you, whether it be come up here or fill out the little white sheet in your bulletin and say, I need to know more about this. I need to know more about what it is like to turn from my sin and put my real, true, resting life and eternity confidence in Jesus and only Jesus. I need to know what it means to be saved. We can come and pray together or you can write on your white sheet and we can answer your questions as soon as we get or, or when we get a chance to get together. But don't let that moment pass over you. Maybe for you now, you realize that some of the influences of your life, you've allowed too much of the world to grab hold of the steering wheel of your life. Too much TV, too much work, too much uh, family, even though it's a good thing, too much uh, money, too much media, too much entertainment. And that's what governs your thoughts and your views. And you just realize that and you want to come and confess that and say, God, Please give me a fresh delight in your word. God, please give me a fresh meditating on your word. Because it does take his grace to do that. It won't happen just because you will it to happen. So however you need to respond, we're going to invite you to stand up now. And however God's speaking to you, we're going to invite you to respond.